0: chapters eight through seventeen of book two of on the parts of animals by aristotle translated by william ogle this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Geoffrey edwards chapter eight we have now to consider the remaining homogeneous parts and will begin with flesh and with the substance that in animals that have no flesh takes its place the reason for so beginning is that flesh forms the very basis of animals and is the essential constituent of their body its right to this precedence can also be demonstrated logically for an animal is by our definition something that has sensibility and chief of all that has the primary sensibility which is that of touch and it is the flesh or analogous substance which is the organ of this sense and it is the organ either in the same way as the eye is the organ of sight that is it constitutes the primary organ of the sense or it is the organ and the medium through which the object acts combined that is it answers to the eye with some or other transparent medium attached to it now in the case of the other senses it was impossible for nature to unite the medium with the sense-organ nor would such junction have served any purpose but in the case of touch she was compelled by necessity to do so for of all the sense-organs that of touch is the only one that has a corporeal medium or at any rate its medium is more corporeal than any other regarding then the flesh in its sensory character it is plain that all the other parts exist on its account by the other parts i mean the bones the skin the sinews and the blood vessels and again the hair and the various kinds of nails, and anything else there may be of a like character. Thus the bones are a contrivance to give security to the soft parts, to which purpose they are adapted by their hardness, and in animals that have no bones the same office is fulfilled by some analogous substance, as by cartilage in some fishes, and by fish-spine in others. Now, in some animals this supporting substance is situated within the body, while in some of the bloodless species it is placed on the outside. The latter is the case in all the crustacea, as the carcini and the carabi. It is the case also in the testacea, as for instance in the several species known by the general name of oysters. for in all these animals the fleshy substance is within and the earthy matter which holds the soft parts together and keeps them from injury is on the outside for the shell not only enables the soft parts to hold together but also as the animal is bloodless and so has but little natural warmth surrounds it as a chauffeur does the embers And keeps in the smouldering heat. Similar to this seems to be the arrangement in another and distinct genus of animal, namely in the tortoises, including the chelone, and the several kinds of emis. But in insects and in cephalopods, the plan is entirely different, there being moreover a contrast between these two themselves for in neither of these does there appear to be any bony or earthy part worthy of notice distinctly separated from the rest of the body thus in the cephalopods the mass of the body consists of a soft flesh-like substance or rather of a substance which is intermediate to flesh and sinew and not so readily destructible as actual flesh I call this substance intermediate to flesh and sinew because it is soft like the former while it admits of stretching like the latter its cleavage however is such that it splits not longitudinally like sinew but into circular segments this being the most advantageous condition so far as strength is concerned these animals have also a part inside them corresponding to the spinous bones of fishes. For instance, in the cuttlefishes there is what is known as the os ossepiae, and in the calamaries there is the so-called gladius. In the pulps, on the other hand, there is no such internal part, because the body or, as it is termed in them, the head, forms but a short sac, whereas it is of considerable length in the other two. And it was this length which led nature to assign to them their hard support, so as to ensure their straightness and inflexibility, just as she has assigned to sanguineous animals their bones or their fish-spines, as the case may be, to come now to insects in these The arrangement is quite different from that of the cephalopods quite different also from that which obtains in sanguineous animals as indeed has been already stated for in an insect there is no distinction into soft and hard parts but the whole body is hard the hardness however being of such a character as to be more flesh-like than bone and more earthy and bone-like than flesh the purpose of this is to make the body of the insect less liable to get broken into pieces chapter nine there is a resemblance between the osseous and the vascular systems for each has a central part in which it begins and each forms a continuous whole for no bone in the body exists as a separate individuality in itself but each is either a portion of what may be considered a continuous whole or at any rate is linked with the rest by contact and by attachments so that nature may use adjoining bones either as though they were actually continuous and formed a single bone or for purposes of flexure as though they were two and distinct and similarly no blood-vessel has in itself a separate individuality but they all form parts of one whole for an isolated bone if such there were would in the first place be unable to perform the office for the sake of which bones exist for were it discontinuous and separated from the rest by a gap it would be perfectly unable to produce either flexure or extension, nor only so, but it would actually be injurious, acting like a thorn or an arrow lodged in the flesh. Similarly, if a vessel were isolated and not continuous with the vascular centre, it would be unable to retain the blood within it in a proper state for it is the warmth derived from this centre that hinders the blood from coagulating indeed the blood when withdrawn from its influence actually becomes putrid now the centre or origin of the blood vessels is the heart and the centre or origin of the bones in all animals that have bones is what is called the chine with this, all the other bones of the body are in continuity, for it is the chine that keeps the body extended and straight. But, since it is absolutely necessary that the body of an animal shall bend during locomotion, this chine, while it is one in virtue of the continuity of its parts, yet by its division into vertebrae is made to consist of many segments. It is from this chine that the bones of the limbs proceed, and with it they are continuous in those animals that have limbs. And these bones form joints at the place where the limbs admit of flexure, being fastened together by sinews, and having their extremities adapted to each other, either by the one being hollowed and the other rounded, or by both being hollowed and including between them a huckle-bone as a connecting-bolt so as to allow of flexure and extension for without some such arrangement these movements would be utterly impossible or at any rate would be performed with great difficulty there are some joints again in which the lower end of the one bone and the upper end of the other are alike in shape in these cases the bones are bound together by sinews and cartilaginous pieces are interposed in the joint to serve as a kind of padding and to prevent the two extremities from grating against each other round about the bones and attached to them by thin fibrous bands grow the fleshy parts for the sake of which the bones themselves exist For just as an artist, when he is moulding an animal out of clay or other soft substance, takes first some solid body as a basis, and around this moulds the clay, so also has nature acted in fashioning the animal body out of flesh. Thus we find all the fleshy parts, with one exception, supported by bones, which serve, when the parts are organs of motion, to facilitate flexure and when the parts are motionless act as a protection the ribs for example which enclose the chest are intended to ensure the safety of the heart and neighbouring viscera the exception of which mention was made is the belly the walls of this are in all animals devoid of bones in order that there may be no hindrance to the expansion which necessarily occurs in this part after a meal nor in females any interference with the growth of the embryo which is lodged here now the bones of viviparous animals of such that is as are not merely externally but also internally viviparous vary but very little from each other in point of strength which in all of them is considerable for the vivipara in their bodily proportions are far above other animals and many of them occasionally grow to an enormous size as is the case in libya and in hot and dry countries generally but the greater the bulk of an animal the stronger the bigger and the harder are the supports which it requires and comparing the big animals with each other this requirement will be most marked in those that live a life of rapine. Thus it is that the bones of males are harder than those of females, and the bones of flesh-eaters that get their food by fighting are harder than those of herbivora. Of this the lion is an example, for so hard are its bones that, when struck, they give off sparks, as though they were flints it may be mentioned also that the dolphin inasmuch as it is viviparous is provided with bones and not merely with fish spines in those sanguineous animals on the other hand that are oviparous the bones present successive slight variations of character thus in birds there are bones but these are not so strong as the bones of the vivipara then come the oviparous fishes, where there is no bone but merely fish-spine. In the serpents, too, the bones have the character of fish-spine, excepting in the very large species, where the solid foundation of the body requires to be stronger, in order that the animal itself may be strong, the same reason prevailing as in the case of the vivipara. Lastly, in the Salachia, as they are called, the fish-spines are replaced by cartilage. For it is necessary that the movements of these animals shall be of an undulating character, and this again requires the solid framework of the body to be pliable, and not rigid in its motions. Moreover, in these salacia. Nature has used all the earthy matter on the skin, and she is unable to distribute to many different parts one and the same superfluity of material. Even in viviparous animals many of the bones are cartilaginous. This happens in those parts where it is to the advantage of the surrounding flesh that its solid base shall be soft and mucilaginous such for instance is the case with the ears and nostrils for in projecting parts such as these rigid substances would soon get broken cartilage and bone are indeed fundamentally the same thing the differences between them being merely matters of degree this is manifested in the fact that neither cartilage nor bone when once cut off grows again now the cartilages of these land-animals are without marrow, that is, without any distinctly separate marrow. For the marrow, which in bones is distinctly separate, is here mixed up with the whole mass, and gives a soft and mucilaginous consistence to the cartilage. But in the salachia, the chine, though it is cartilaginous, yet contains marrow for here it stands in the stead of a bone. Very nearly resembling the bones to the touch are such parts as nails, hoofs, claws, horns, and the beaks of birds, all of which are intended to serve as means of defence. For the organs which are made out of these substances, and which are called by the same names as the substances themselves, the organ hoof for instance and the organ horn are contrivances to ensure the preservation of the animals to which they severally belong in this class too must be reckoned the teeth which in some animals have but a single function namely the mastication of the food while in others they have an additional office namely to serve as instruments of offense as is the case with all animals that have sharp, interfitting teeth, or that have tusks. All these parts are necessarily of a solid and earthy character, for the value of a weapon depends on such properties. Their earthy character explains how it is, that all such parts are much more developed in viviparous quadrupeds than in man. For, There is always more earth in the composition of these animals than in that of the human body. However, not only all these parts, but such others as are nearly connected with them, skin for instance, bladder, membrane, hairs, feathers, and their analogues, and any other similar parts that there may be, will be considered farther on with the heterogeneous parts there we shall examine into the causes which produce them and into the objects of their presence severally in the bodies of animals for as with the heterogeneous parts so with these it is from a consideration of their functions that alone we can derive any knowledge of them the reason for dealing with them at all in this part of the treatise and classifying them with the homogeneous parts is that under one and the same name are confounded the entire organs and the substances of which they are composed but of all these substances flesh and bone form the basis semen and milk were also passed over when we were considering the homogeneous fluids for the treatise on generation will afford a more suitable place for their examination seeing that the former of the two is the very foundation of the thing generated while the latter is its nourishment chapter ten. let us now make as it were a fresh beginning and consider the heterogeneous parts taking those first, which are the first in importance. For in all animals, at least in all the perfect kinds, there are two parts more essential than the rest, namely the part which serves for the ingestion of food, and the part which serves for the discharge of its residue. For without food, growth, and even existence is impossible intervening again between these two parts there is invariably a third in which is lodged the vital principle as for plants though they are included by us among things that have life yet are they without any part for the discharge of residue for the food which they absorb from the ground is already concocted and they give off as its equivalent their seeds and fruits. Plants again, inasmuch as they are without locomotion, present no great variety in their heterogeneous parts. For where the functions are but few, few also are the organs required to affect them. The configuration of plants is a matter then for separate consideration. Animals, however, that not only live but feel, present a much greater multiformity of parts and this diversity is greater in some animals than in others being most varied in those to whose share has fallen not mere life but life of high degree now such an animal is man for of all living beings with which we are acquainted man alone partakes of the divine or at any rate partakes of it in a fuller measure than the rest. For this reason, then, and also because his external parts and their forms are more familiar to us than those of other animals, we must speak of man first. And this the more fitly, because in him alone do the natural parts hold their natural position. His upper part being turned towards that which is upper, in the universe for of all animals man alone stands erect in man then the head is destitute of flesh this being the necessary consequence of what has already been stated concerning the brain there are indeed some who hold that the life of man would be longer than it is were his head more abundantly furnished with flesh and they account for the absence of this substance by saying that it is intended to add to the perfection of sensation. For the brain they assert to be the organ of sensation, and sensation, they say, cannot penetrate to parts that are too thickly covered with flesh. But neither part of this statement is true. On the contrary, were the region of the brain thickly covered with flesh the very purpose for which animals are provided with a brain would be directly contravened for the brain would itself be heated to excess and so quite unable to cool any other part and as to the latter half of their statement the brain cannot be the cause of any of the sensations seeing that it is itself as utterly without feeling as any one of the excretions these writers see that certain of the senses are located in the head and are unable to discern any reason for this they see also that the brain is the most peculiar of all the animal organs and out of these facts they form an argument by which they link sensation and brain together It has, however, already been clearly set forth in the treatise on sensation that it is the region of the heart that constitutes the sensory centre. There also it was stated that two of the senses, namely touch and taste, are manifestly directly dependent on the heart, and that as regards the other three, namely hearing, sight, and the centrally placed sense of smell it is the character of their sense-organs which causes them to be lodged as a rule in the head vision is so placed in all animals but such is not invariably the case with hearing or with smell for fishes and the like hear and smell and yet have no visible organs for the senses in the head effect which demonstrates the accuracy of the opinion here maintained now that division, whenever it exists should be in the neighbourhood of the brain is but what one would rationally expect for the brain is fluid and cold and division is of the character of water water being of all transparent substances the one most easily confined moreover It cannot but necessarily be that the more precise senses will have their precision rendered still greater if ministered to by parts that have the purest blood for the motion of the heat of blood destroys sensory activity for these reasons the organs of the precise senses are lodged in the hand it is not only the fore part of the hand That is destitute of flesh but the hind part also for in all animals that have a head it is this head which more than any other part requires to be held up but were the head heavily laden with flesh this would be impossible for nothing so burdened can be held upright this fact is an additional proof that the absence of flesh from the hand has no reference to brain sensation for there is no brain in the hinder part of the hand and yet this is as much without flesh as is the front in some animals hearing as well as vision is lodged in the region of the head nor is this without a rational explanation for what is called the empty space is full of air and the organ of hearing is as we say formed of air now there are channels which lead from the eyes to the blood vessels that surround the brain and similarly there is a channel which leads back again from each ear and connects it with the hinder part of the head but no part that is without blood is endowed with sensation as neither is the blood itself but only certain parts formed of blood so that none of the bloodless parts of sanguineous animals are endowed with sensation nor their blood itself for no such part is sensitive in any animal the brain in all animals that have one is placed in the front part of the head because the direction in which sensation acts is in front, and because the heart from which sensation proceeds is in the front part of the body, and lastly because the instruments of sensation are the blood-containing parts, and the cavity in the posterior part of the skull is destitute of blood-vessels. As to the position of the sense-organs, they have been arranged by nature in the following suitable manner. The organs of hearing are so placed as to divide the circumference of the hand into two equal halves, for they have to hear not only sounds which are directly in a line with themselves, but sounds from all quarters. The organs of vision are placed in front, because sight is exercised only in a straight line, and moving as we do in a forward direction, it is necessary that we should see before us, in the direction of our motion. Lastly, the organs of smell are placed with good reason between the eyes. For as the body consists of two parts, a right half and a left, so also each organ of sense is double in the case of touch this is not apparent the reason being that the primary organ of this sense is not the flesh or analogous part but lies internally in the case of taste which is merely a modification of touch and which is placed in the tongue the fact is more apparent than in the case of touch but still not so manifest as in the case of the other senses however even in taste the fact is evident enough for in some animals the tongue is plainly forked the double character of the sensations is however much more conspicuous in the other organs of sense for there are two ears and two eyes and the nostrils though combined together are also two were these latter otherwise disposed and separated from each other as are the ears neither they nor the nose in which they are placed would be able to perform their office for in such animals as have nostrils olfaction is effected by means of inspiration and the organ of inspiration is placed in front and in the middle line this is the reason Why nature has brought the two nostrils together, and placed them as the central of the three sense organs, setting them symmetrically on either side of a perpendicular line, where they benefit by the inspiratory motion. In other animals than man, the arrangement of these sense organs is also such as is adapted in each case to the special requirements chapter eleven for instance in quadrupeds the ears project from the head and are set to all appearance above the eyes not that they are in reality above the eyes but they seem to be so because the animal does not stand upright but has its head hung downwards this being the usual attitude of the animal when in motion it is of advantage that its ears shall be high up and very movable for they can then be turned in all directions and readily taken sounds from all quarters chapter twelve in birds on the other hand there are no ears but only the auditory passages this is because their skin is hard and because they have feathers instead of hairs, so that they have not got the proper material for the formation of ears. Exactly the same is the case with such oviparous quadrupeds as are clad with scaly plates, and the same explanation applies to them. There is also one of the viviparous quadrupeds, namely the seal, that has no ears, but only the auditory passages the explanation of this is that the seal though a quadruped is a quadruped of stunted formation chapter thirteen men and birds and quadrupeds viviparous and oviparous alike have their eyes protected by lids in the vivipara there are two of these, and both are used by these animals, not only in closing the eye, but also in the act of blinking, whereas the oviparous quadrupeds and the heavy-bodied birds, as well as some others, use only the lower lid to close the eye, while birds blink by means of a membrane connected with the canthus. The reason For the eyes being thus protected is that nature has made them of fluid consistency in order to ensure keenness of vision for had they been covered with hard skin they would it is true have been less liable to get injured by anything falling into them from without but they would not have been sharp-sighted it is then to ensure keenness of vision that the skin over the pupil is fine and delicate while the lids are superadded as a protection from injury it is as a still further safeguard that all these animals blink and man most of all this action which is not performed from deliberate intention but from a natural instinct serving to keep objects from falling into the eyes and being more frequent in man than in the rest of these animals because of the greater delicacy of his skin. These lids are made of a roll of skin, and it is because they are made of skin and contain no flesh that neither they nor the similarly constructed prepuce unite again when once cut as to the oviparous quadrupeds and such birds as resemble them in closing the eye with the lower lid it is the hardness of the skin of their heads which makes them do so for such birds as have heavy bodies are not made for flight and so the materials which would otherwise have gone to increase the size of the feathers are diverted thence and used to augment the thickness of the skin birds therefore of this kind close the eye with the lower lid whereas pigeons and the like use both upper and lower lids for the purpose as birds are covered with feathers so oviparous quadrupeds are covered with scaly plates and these in all their forms are harder than hairs so that the skin also to which they belong is harder than the skin of hairy animals in these animals then the skin on the head is hard and so does not allow of the formation of an upper eyelid whereas lower down the integument is of a flesh-like character so that the lower lid can be thin and extensible the act of blinking is performed by the heavy-bodied birds by means of the membrane already mentioned and not by this lower lid for in blinking rapid motion is required and such is the motion of this membrane whereas that of the lower lid is slow it is from the inner canthus that is from the one nearest to the nostrils that the membrane comes for it is better to have one starting-point for nictitation than two and in these birds this starting-point is the junction of eye and nostrils an anterior starting-point being preferable to a lateral one oviparous quadrupeds do not blink in like manner as the birds for living as they do on the ground they are free from the necessity of having eyes of fluid consistency and of keen sight, whereas these are essential requisites for such birds as have to use their eyes at long distances. This too explains why birds with talons that have to search for prey by eye from aloft, and therefore soar to greater heights than other birds, are sharp-sighted, while common fowls and the like that live on the ground, and are not made for flight have no such keenness of vision for there is nothing in their mode of life which imperatively requires it fishes and insects and the hard-skinned crustacea present certain differences in their eyes but so far resemble each other as that none of them have eyelids as for the hard-skinned crustacea It is utterly out of the question that they should have any for an eyelid to be of use requires the action of the skin to be rapid these animals then have no eyelids and in default of this protection their eyes are hard just as though the lid were attached to the surface of the eye and the animal saw through it inasmuch however as such hardness must necessarily blunt the sharpness of vision, nature has endowed the eyes of insects, and still more those of crustacea, with great mobility, just as she has given some quadrupeds very movable ears, in order that they may be able to turn to the light and catch its rays, and so see more plainly. Fishes, however, have eyes of a fluid consistency for all animals that move much about have to use their vision at considerable distances if now they live on land the air in which they move is transparent enough but the water in which fishes live is a hindrance to sharp sight though it has this advantage over the air that it does not contain so many objects to knock against the eyes the risk of collision being thus small nature who makes nothing in vain has given no eyelids to fishes while to counterbalance the opacity of the water she has made their eyes of fluid consistency chapter fourteen all animals that have hairs on the body have lashes on the eyelids but birds and animals with scale-like plates being careless have none the libyan ostrich indeed forms an exception for though a bird it is furnished with eyelashes this exception however will be explained hereafter of hairy animals man alone has lashes on both lids for in quadrupeds there is a greater abundance of hair on the back than on the under side of the body whereas in man the contrary is the case and the hair is more abundant on the front surface than on the back the reason for this is that hair is intended to serve as a protection to its possessor now in quadrupeds owing to their inclined attitude the under or anterior surface does not require so much protection as the back and is therefore left bald in spite of its being the nobler of the two sides but in man owing to his upright attitude the anterior and posterior surfaces of the body are on an equality as regards need of protection nature therefore has assigned the protective covering to the nobler of the two surfaces, for invariably she brings about the best arrangement of such as are possible. This, then, is the reason that there is no lower eyelash in any quadruped, though in some a few scattered hairs, sprout out under the lower lid. This also is the reason that they never have hair in the axillae, nor on the pubes, as man has. Their hair, then, instead of being collected in these parts, is either thickly set over the whole dorsal surface, as is the case for instance in dogs, or sometimes forms a mane, as in horses and the like, or as in the male lion, where the mane is still more flowing and ample. So again, whenever there is a tail of any length, nature decks it with hair with long hair if the stem of the tail be short as in horses with short hair if the stem be long regard also being had to the condition of the rest of the body for nature invariably distributes her material by subtracting from one part and giving to another thus when she has covered the general surface of an animal's body with an excess of hair she leaves a deficiency in the region of the back this for instance is the case with bears no animal has so much hair on the head as man this in the first place is the necessary result of the fluid character of his brain and of the presence of so many sutures in his skull for wherever there is the most fluid and the most heat there also must necessarily occur the greatest outgrowth but secondly the thickness of the hair in this part has a final cause being intended to protect the head by preserving it from excess of either heat or cold and as the brain of man is larger and more fluid than that of any other animal it requires a proportionately greater amount of protection for the more fluid a substance is the more readily does it get excessively heated or excessively chilled while substances of an opposite character are less liable to such injurious affections this however is a digression into which we have been led by the close connection of hair and eyelashes the causes to which these latter owe their existence being the real matter in hand. We must therefore put off all further details concerning the hair till the proper occasions arrive, and then return to the full consideration of the subject. CHAPTER fifteen. Both eyebrows and eyelashes exist for the protection of the eyes. The former, that they may shelter them, like the eaves of a house from any fluids that trickle down the head the latter to act like the palisades which are sometimes placed in front of enclosures and to keep out any objects which might otherwise get in the brows are placed over the junction of two bones which is the reason that in old age they often become so bushy as to require cutting the lashes are set at the terminations of small blood-vessels. For the vessels come to an end where the skin itself terminates, and in all places where these endings occur, the exudation of moisture of a corporeal character necessitates the growth of hairs, unless there be some operation of nature which interferes by diverting the moisture to another purpose chapter sixteen in the generality of viviparous quadrupeds there is no great variety in the forms of the organ of smell in those of them however whose jaws project forwards and taper to a narrow end so as to form what is called a snout the nostrils are placed in this projection there being no other available plan while in the rest there is a more definite demarcation between nostrils and jaws. But in no animal is this part so peculiar as in the elephant, where it attains an extraordinary size and strength. For the elephant uses its nostril as a hand, this being the instrument with which it conveys food, fluid, and solid alike, to its mouth. With it, too, it tears up trees, coiling it round their trunks in fact it applies it generally to the purposes of a hand for the elephant has the double character of a land animal and of one that lives in swamps seeing then that it has to get food in the water and yet must necessarily breathe in as much as it is a land animal and has blood seeing also that its excessive weight prevents it from passing rapidly from water to land as some other sanguineous vivipara that breathe can do it becomes necessary that it shall be suited alike for life in the water and for life on dry land just then as divers are sometimes provided with instruments for respiration through which they can draw air from above the water and thus may remain for a long time under the sea so also have elephants been furnished by nature with their lengthened nostril and whenever they have to traverse the water they lift this up above the surface and breathe through it for the elephant's proboscis as already said is a nostril now it would have been impossible for this nostril to have the form of a proboscis had it been hard and incapable of bending for its very length would then have prevented the animal from supplying itself with food being as great an impediment as the horns of certain oxen that are said to be obliged to walk backwards while they are grazing it is therefore soft and flexible and being such is made in addition to its own proper functions to serve the office of the forefeet nature in this following her wonted plan of using one and the same part for several purposes for in polydactylus quadrupeds the forefeet are not intended merely to support the body but also to serve as hands but in elephants though they must be reckoned polydactylus as their foot has neither cloven nor solid hoof the forefeet, owing to the great size and weight of the body are reduced to the condition of mere supports and indeed their slow motion and unfitness for bending make them useless for any other purpose a nostril then is given to the elephant for respiration as to every other animal that has a lung and is lengthened out and endowed with its power of coiling because the animal has to remain for considerable periods of time in the water and is unable to pass thence to dry ground with any rapidity. but as the feet are shorn of their full office, the same part is also as before said made by nature to supply their place and give such help as otherwise would be rendered by them as to other sanguineous animals the birds the serpents and the oviparous quadrupeds in all of them there are the nostril holes placed in front of the mouth but in none are there any distinctly formed nostrils nothing in fact which can be called nostrils except from a functional point of view a bird, at any rate, has nothing which can properly be called a nose, for its so called beak is a substitute for jaws. The reason for this is to be found in the natural conformation of birds, for they are winged bipeds, and this makes it necessary that their head and neck shall be of light weight, just as it makes it necessary that their breastbone shall be narrowed. The beak, therefore, with which they are provided is formed of a bone-like substance in order that it may serve as a weapon as well as for nutritive purposes but is made of narrow dimensions to suit the small size of the head in this beak are placed the olfactory passages but there are no nostrils for such could not possibly be placed there as for those animals that have no respiration it has already been explained why it is that they are without nostrils, and perceive odours either through gills or through a blowhole, or if they are insects, by the hyposoma, and how their power of smelling depends, like their motions, upon the innate spirit of their bodies, which in all of them is implanted by nature and not introduced from without under the nostrils are the lips in such sanguineous animals that is as have teeth for in birds as already has been said the purposes of nutrition and defence are fulfilled by a bone-like beak which forms a compound substitute for teeth and lips for supposing that one were to cut off a man's lips unite his upper teeth together and similarly his under ones and then were to lengthen out the two separate pieces thus formed flattening them on either side and making them project forwards supposing i say this to be done we should at once have a bird-like beak the use of the lips in all animals except man is to preserve and guard the teeth and thus it is that the distinctness with which the lips are formed is in direct proportion to the degree of nicety and perfection with which the teeth are fashioned. In man the lips are soft and flesh-like, and capable of separating from each other. Their purpose, as in other animals, is to guard the teeth, but they are more especially intended to serve a higher office, contributing, in common with other parts, to man's faculty of speech. For just as nature has made man's tongue unlike that of other animals, and in accordance with what I have said is her not uncommon practice, has used it for two distinct operations namely, for the perception of savours and for speech so also has she acted with regard to the lips, and made them serve both for speech and for the protection of the teeth. For Vocal speech consists of combinations of the letters, and most of these it would be impossible to pronounce were the lips not moist, nor the tongue such as it is. For some letters are formed by closures of the lips, and others by applications of the tongue. But the differences of these movements, their nature and their number, are questions the discussion of which belongs to the writers on articulation. It was necessary, however, for us to follow up the several parts in question at once to the function now assigned to them, and to show that they are of a character well suited for its performance. Therefore it is then that they are made of flesh, and the flesh of man is softer than that of any other animal, the reason for this being that of all animals man has the most delicate sense of touch chapter seventeen the tongue is placed under the vaulted roof of the mouth in land animals it presents but little diversity but in other animals it is variable and this whether we compare them as a class with such as live on land or compare their several species with each other it is in man that the tongue attains its greatest degree of freedom of softness and of breadth the object of this being to render it suitable for its double function for its softness fits it for the perception of savours a sense which is more delicate in man than in any other animal softness being most impressionable by touch of which sense-taste is but a variety the same softness again together with its breadth adapts it for the articulation of letters and for speech for these qualities combined with its freedom from attachment are those which suit it best for advancing and retiring in every direction that this is so is plain If we consider the case of those who are tongue-tied in however slight a degree for their speech is indistinct and lisping that is to say they have not got the full power of uttering letters in being broad is comprised the possibility of becoming narrow for in the great the small is included but not the great in the small what has been said explains why even among birds, those that are most capable of pronouncing letters, are such as have the broadest tongues, and why the viviparous and sanguineous quadrupeds, where the tongue is hard and thick, and not free in its motions, have a very limited vocal articulation. Some birds have a considerable variety of notes. These are the smaller kinds, but it is the birds with talons that have the broader tongues and consequently the greater aptitude for speech all birds use their tongues to communicate with each other but some do this in a greater degree than the rest so that in some cases it even seems as though actual instruction were imparted from one to another by its agency these however are matters which have already been discussed in the researches concerning animals. As to those oviparous and sanguineous animals that live not in the air but on the earth, their tongue in most cases is tied down and hard, and is therefore useless for vocal purposes. In the serpents, however, and in the lizards, it is long and forked, so as to be suited for the perception of savors, So long indeed is this part in serpents that, though small while in the mouth, it can be protruded to a great distance. In these same animals it is forked, and has a fine and hair-like extremity because of their extreme liking for dainty food. For by this arrangement they derive a twofold pleasure from savors their gustatory sensation being as it were doubled. Even some bloodless animals have an organ that serves for the perception of savours, and in sanguineous animals such an organ is invariably present. For even in such of these, as would seem to an ordinary observer to have nothing of the kind, some of the fishes, for example, there is a kind of shabby representative of a tongue much like what exists in river crocodiles in most of these cases the apparent absence of the part can be rationally explained on some or other ground for in the first place the interior of the mouth in animals of this character is invariably spinous secondly in water animals there is but short space of time for the perception of savours and as the use of this sense is thus of short duration shortened also is the separate part which subserves it the reason for their food being so rapidly transmitted to the stomach is that they cannot possibly spend any time in sucking out the juices for were they to attempt to do so the water would make its way in during the process. Unless, therefore, one pulls their mouth very widely open indeed, the projection of this part is quite invisible. The region exposed by thus opening the mouth is spinous, for it is formed by the close apposition of the gills, which are of a spinous character. In crocodiles, the immobility of the lower jaw also contributes in some measure to stunt the development of the tongue for the crocodile's tongue is adherent to the lower jaw and its upper and lower jaws are as it were inverted for in other animals it is the upper jaw which is the immovable one the tongue then of this animal does not adhere to the upper jaw because that would interfere with the ingestion of food but adheres to the lower jaw because this is as it were the upper one which has changed its place moreover it is the crocodile's lot though a land animal to live the life of a fish and this again necessarily involves an indistinct formation of the part in question the roof of the mouth resembles flesh even in many of the fishes and in some of the river species as for instance in the fishes known as coprini is so very flesh-like and soft as to be taken by careless observers for a tongue the tongue of fishes however though it exists as a separate part is never distinctly visible like this as has been already explained again as the gustatory sensibility is intended to serve animals in the selection of food it is not diffused equally over the whole surface of the tongue-like organ but is placed chiefly in the tip and for this reason it is the tip which is the only part of the tongue separated in fishes from the rest of the mouth As all animals are sensible to the pleasure derivable from food, they all feel a desire for it, for the object of desire is the pleasant. The part, however, in which food produces the sensation, is not precisely alike in all of them, but while in some it is free from attachments, in others, where it is not required for vocal purposes, it is united with the base of the mouth, In some again it is hard in others soft or flesh-like thus even the crustacea the carabi for instance and the like and the cephalopods such as the sepias and the pulps have some such part inside the mouth as for the insects some of them have the part which serves as tongue inside the mouth as is the case with ants and as is also the case with many testacea while in others it is placed externally in this latter case it resembles a sting or piercer and is hollow and spongy so as to serve at one and the same time for the tasting and for the sucking up of nutriment this is plainly to be seen in flies and bees and all such animals and likewise in some of the testacea in the purpuri, for instance, so strong is this part that it enables them to bore holes through the hard covering of shellfish, of the spiral snails, for example, that are used as bait to catch them. So also, gadflies and cattle flies can pierce through the skin of man, and some of them even through the skins of other animals. Such, then, in these animals is the nature of the tongue which is thus, as it were, the counterpart of the elephant's nostril. For, as in the elephant, the nostril is used as a weapon, so in these animals the tongue serves as a piercer or sting. In all other animals the tongue agrees with the description already given. End of chapter 17 and end of book 2